Welcome, everybody. Great to see you. A special welcome to those of you joining us online. Thanks for being here as we continue in our series called Next Steps. Next Steps. We're looking at the books of First and Second Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul wrote them. Let me just review real quickly. Um, Paul started this church in Thessalonica, and just a few weeks after its inception, he was driven out of town through persecution. He winds up in Corinth, and while he's in Corinth, Timothy brings back a report that the church, although they're under, undergoing persecution, the church is doing very well. And so he sits down and he writes a letter, 1 Thessalonians, to this brand new church. They had no real spiritual leadership in place, no mature leadership, yet they're growing in their faith, and he, he writes to commend them and to straighten out some of their thinking. Well, after 1 Thessalonians, just a very few months later, he gets another report. We don't know who brought this report to him, uh, but in the report, he, he un- began to understand that they still don't quite understand doctrinally what they need to, and so he's trying to help them take their next steps in understanding, in particular, the Lord's return. And so these next couple of weeks, today we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, next week 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, real quickly, here's just an overview. There's only three chapters in 2 Thessalonians. The first chapter, he's writing and he is telling them to continue to persevere. He's very proud of them. And he tells them about this this judgment that's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Then in chapter 2, and this is going to be next week's sermon, very interesting, he talks about the Antichrist. And I don't know if you've heard about the Antichrist. What is the Antichrist? What is the man of lawlessness? Um, Before the Lord returns, the Antichrist is going to be revealed. So next week is going to be a very interesting discussion as we go through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we talk in particular about the Antichrist. Now, because they thought, the Thessalonican church thought, Jesus was coming back immediately, they decided to kick back and not work. You know, it's kind of like in the 70s, uh, people kept talking about the Lord's coming back, the Lord's coming back, and and a, a certain group of Christians started maxing out their credit cards. They're like, well, if the Lord's coming back, I'm going to charge and do what I want to do, and then, you know, I'll stick the bank with the bill. How many know the Lord didn't come back then? And they were still with the bill. Well, the, the Thessalonians, what they were doing is they were not going to work. They're like, hey, the Lord's coming back. We may as well live it up right now. And so they're mooching off each other. And so chapter three deals with um, a theology of work. So persecution, judgment, chapter one, antichrist, chapter two, theology of get back to work, chapter three. So today what we're going to do is we're going to jump right in to this idea of the Lord's return. And I'm calling it joy and judgment when Jesus returns. Joy and judgment when Jesus returns. The first four verses, though, in 2 Thessalonians, don't jump into judgment yet. What he's doing is he is commending them again. And as he writes, he's writing with a loving tone, not a real authoritarian tone, authoritative tone, but more of a loving, tender tone. Now, there is some error in their beliefs. There's some problems in the church. But these problems aren't insurmountable. It's not hurting their witness. They just need some clarity. And that's why he writes 2 Thessalonians to bring this much needed clarity. So let's just jump right in and see if you can hear kind of the tenderness and how proud Paul is of this new church. 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Silas, of course, and Timothy were with Paul in Corinth. They were helping him get the church established there. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul always did, he starts by saying, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to the church and peace to the church. I, I've kind of adopted this in my emails, for example. Oftentimes I'll write grace and peace. Grace and peace. How many of those are two good things to have? If you're part of the family of God, to have the grace of God and the peace of God. And that's how he introduces this. And here in verse three, he jumps right in and shows them why he is so proud of them. Here's what he commends them for. He said, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so. Why? Because your faith is growing more and more. What's making them proud is that their faith is growing in the middle of the trouble they're undergoing, in the middle of the confiscation of property and being beat up for their faith and losing their jobs and suffering. Their faith is growing. Can I tell you? That's what brings joy to a spiritual leadership is when in spite of the stuff you're going through and suffering, that your faith in God is still growing. And he commends them for it. Your faith is growing more and more. And the love of all you have for one another is increasing. How many know if you were to look at the two gauges on your car that show and indicate whether or not the car is doing well, on the one gauge, you've got the fuel gauge. If your fuel is up, you're good. How many know when it goes below E, you better get to a gas station quick or the engine's shutting down? And so the one gauge is the faith gauge. Your faith is growing. You know, you're you're maxing out here. You're full of faith. And on the other hand, the other gauge on your car that will tell you if you've got trouble is your temperature gauge. I mean, if your temperature gauge goes red line, you're going to blow the engine. But if it's in that safe zone, you're good. And he said the other gauge, not only is your faith growing, but your love is increasing for one another. Church, you're doing well. You're doing well. And he goes on to say this. Therefore, because of your faith growing and your love increasing, I boast among God's churches, we boast about you. I mean, I tell the church at Corinth, I tell the church at Philippi, at Colossae, the church in Galatia, I, I just tell them, you got to see this church. They're young in the Lord, they're being persecuted, they're suffering greatly, but their faith is off the charts and they love each other so well and so he's proud of them. He's building them up. We boast about your perseverance and your faith in all the persecutions and the trials you're enduring. It's hard, but you're doing well in what matters most. Faith, love, perseverance, endurance. You know, in this life, we will have trouble. Isn't that what Jesus told us? I want you to know John 16. He said, listen, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Human nature, we try to avoid pain at all costs, don't we? We like our life to be smooth sailing. But in this world, Jesus said, you're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You're with me. You're part of the kingdom. Yes, there's going to be troubles, trials, pain, affliction, persecution, but don't let that throw you. Don't let it move you. You belong to me. And so he's commending them. You know, sometimes we commend churches 
and boast about our churches for things that really aren't that important. We, we commend a church for how many people are attending, how big it is. We commend a church for their innovative programs, their liturgy, their theology, their stained glass windows, their buildings. And thank God for buildings. Thank God for all these things. But somehow I don't think that's what the Lord commends a church for. Do you? Wow. Your pastor church is so awesome. This must be a great church. You've got a great pastor. Woo! Look at that building. Look at the property. Look at the wealth of the congregation. Look how, oh, so blessed. Woo! You know, Lisa and I just got back from our 30th wedding anniversary. I know, it's hard to believe. We were 10 when we got married. And so we went up to Quebec. You know, Quebec is not very far from here. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump. Four, four and a half hours, you're in Quebec City. And it's just a cool place. You know, a lot of history, great food. And so we're in Quebec City, and we said, well, we want to go see. We kept hearing about this church. It's a Catholic church. Not just a church, it's a basilica. I think it's a fortress just north of Quebec called St. Anne. Thank you. I don't speak French. I barely speak English. And so we go to this basilica. We walk in, you know, and you can tell they're proud of it. Just, just magnificent building. The stations of the cross going up the hill. It's really quite interesting and beautiful. I mean, we walk in, there's crutches where God has healed people. You know, they look old, but still, God healed someone someday, you know, and the crutches go up the ceiling, you know, up the walls. And so I say, oh, that's cool. It's cool. You know, you can tell they're proud of their building and they keep it up well and be commended for that. But then, and it, granted, it was a midday, but then the mass starts in this building. I, it would cost you $50 million to build a church like that today. It's just amazing. And so we just kind of hung around a little bit for the mass and there's eight people there. And I'm like, oh my word, all this beautiful buildings, all this money, all this past history, and there's just a couple people there. But you know, God looks at people differently than we look at people. God looks at things differently. The Bible says we look at the outward. What does God look at? The heart of people. And those saints, in that magnificent structure, but the heart of those people worshiping God in spite of the low numbers, persevering, who knows what trials they've been through. But here's the point. The point is this. When God looks at his church, what makes him smile? What's he proud of? I'll tell you what he's proud of. The same thing Paul was proud of. He's proud of people whose faith is growing, whose love is increasing for one another, who are persevering in the middle of trouble. Anyone can be a fair-weather Christian. Anyone can say, oh, things are great in my life. Marriage is great. Health is great. Money is great. Friendships are great. Everything's great. Yay. Well, goodness, anybody can be happy then. How's your joy when things are hard? When you lose a loved one, when you're in and out of the hospital, when they say it's cancer, when... Financially, things aren't adding up when there's stress with the boss or with the employees or how's your faith then, right? And so he's commending this church. He said, they're, they're being persecuted. Their kids are suffering. People are being murdered. People are losing their property. All this trials. 
yet their faith is growing and their love is increasing. And he's saying, well done, well done. You know, I know that some of us in this season, for whatever reason, probably many of us, you've been going through some trials, some trouble. And maybe some of it is physical or emotional, relational. I don't know what your trouble is, but it's common. You're not a special case, right? We all go through trials and tribulation. So just stay faithful to Jesus, right? Persevere through it. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted. He won't let the trial be more than you can bear. He's with you. And part of the, the way we understand that he's with us and that he is faithful is in the middle of the problem, in the middle of the crisis. So don't lose heart. And he's trying to build, he's trying to encourage the church. I'm proud of you guys. Keep growing. Keep loving. Keep persevering. Keep enduring, right? Here is heart, his fatherly heart for this church and how proud he is of them. And then all of a sudden, there is this transition in the text, verses 5 to 10. We're going to focus here. There's only 12 verses in chapter 1, and the last two are of a prayer. So these five verses, or six verses rather, all of a sudden, there's a transition. And he goes telling them he's proud of them, and then he, he, like, he peels back this, this veil that they, they weren't understanding Jesus returned. They thought it was happening today and he split second. That's why they're not working. They don't understand the implications. They're, they're suffering, but they're still being faithful. But he wants them to understand what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. It's one of the basic doctrines of the church. Now, if I were to ask you, what are the six basic doctrines of the, the Christian faith? What is Christianity 101? What do I need to know if maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for many years? Maybe you haven't crossed the threshold of faith. You're just interested. Uh, or maybe you're somewhere on that journey. What should every Christian know? What are the six things every Christian should know? What are the elementary teachings about our faith? Christianity 101. I'm just going to recount them real quickly, and then we're going to jump in because this is the, the, the thrust of what this text is. Well, the first thing is this. The writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, that every believer needs to know this. Repentance from acts that lead to death. In other words, sin, the wages of sin is death. But when you come to Christ, your sins are forgiven. There is a turning. There's a repenting. There's a change that happens. Where we now understand the law of God that we have broken, we've rebelled against God, and we repent. We turn from sin and we turn to God. How many know that maybe you were an alcoholic or you were sexually immoral or you were full of anger and rage? You did hold grudges, but now you belong to Christ. You've repented. You've turned from that. You've turned to the Savior. And the second thing that all believers need to understand, basics, repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God. Not faith in faith, not faith in you. Faith in the creator. Faith in God is a basic. That's why we call it our faith. What does it mean? It's our trust in Jesus. It's our trust in his, in his holy word and the character of God and who God is. It's basic. Repent from acts that lead to death. Put faith in God. And you know what the third one is? Basic doctrine. This is Christianity 101. Baptism. Doctrine of baptisms. Have you been baptized? You've repented for your sins. 
Yep. You've put your faith in, in God and Christ. Yep. Have you been baptized? Nah, I'm kind of holding out on that one. This is, this is goo goo gaga. We, every, every single third Sunday of the month in both campuses, we have water baptism. You need to be baptized. It's after the service, after the third service at both locations, we do a, a special baptism service. But just take that step of faith, baptism. You know what the fourth one is? Of all these six basic ones that the writer of Hebrews says, this one surprises me the most. The fourth basic doctrine, the elementary teaching about Christ, is the laying on of hands. Is that one shocking? What do we lay hands on people for? Well, to set them apart into ministry, Acts chapter 6, right? The apostles laid hands on the deacons. Moses laid hands on Joshua. We lay hands on the sick. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, right? Mark 16, we lay hands to pray for people. That's a basic doctrine. You know, boxing is biblical, the laying on of hands. Someone should tell Anthony Joshua that. Some of you don't know what that means. You don't know Anthony Joshua. He was the heavyweight champ, undefeated. He got knocked out last night. You don't care. Oh, well. All right, let's move on. The resurrection from the dead. Basic biblical doctrine. The resurrection from the dead. All believers need to know that, that Jesus being the first fruits was the first raised from the dead and we're going to be raised too. This mortal shall take on immortality. We're going to be raised from the dead, right? Basic. And the sixth one. And this one, sometimes we swallow hard. You know what the sixth basic doctrine that we shouldn't understand is this? Eternal judgment. Judgment's appointed unto man once to die and after that judgment. Now, when the Lord Jesus returns, and the scripture says he's coming again. The first time he came, he came as a lamb to offer himself on the cross, the suffering servant to pay for our sins. The second time he comes, he's coming as a lion. He's coming to exact judgment to pour out his wrath on all evil, wickedness, ungodliness. He's coming. And when he comes, the second coming of Christ, there will be joy and there will be judgment. Paul was a judgment preacher. He talked in Romans 2 about the wrath that is being stored up against all ungodliness and sinners until the Lord comes and pours out his wrath. It's like God keeps records. The Bible says, behold the goodness and the severity of God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You know, we all like the love message. That is the most powerful message of all. Love trumps. I might not have been the best word for that, but love <laughs> covers all. Um, <laughs> the word's been hijacked, you know. It's like the rainbow's been hijacked. You know what some people think, you know, all right, Paul was a judgment preacher. Yes, we see he was. But Jesus... Jesus wasn't. And I've actually had people say this to me over the years, you know, I'm so glad you're not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And I'm like, well, I partially am glad you said that. You know, it's my job, and we've talked about this, as a pastor is to preach the whole counsel of God. And um, we need a balanced diet. 
right? How many know if all you ate was prunes, you'd have plenty of fiber. It would be a real moving experience. That's all I can tell you. But how many know you need some meat and potatoes and vegetables? And it's the same in the scripture. We just don't have the love message all the time. Although that is the heart behind everything that God does. God is love. But you need the truth too. It's grace and truth. And do you realize that Jesus, more so even than Paul, was a hellfire and brimstone preacher? Not, not every message. But his first message was always repent. Believe the gospel. Repent. Paul's first message. Repent. Peter. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Just receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Jesus, in his very first recorded sermon, talks about hellfire three times. The worm dies not, the fire is not quenched. Matthew 10, I'll tell you who you should fear, Jesus said. Don't fear the person that can kill the body. Fear the person that can kill the body sends you to hell. That's who you should fear. Talking about God. You see, we need to understand what's going to happen when the Lord returns. Eternal judgment, basic fundamental doctrine of the, of the faith. When Christ returns, there are two extremes that will happen. Now, I'm a person who's kind of given to extremes. I don't know why, but I've always kind of liked extremes. So I like watching extreme war movies. Saving Private Ryan, Hacksaw Ridge, you know, the blood and guts, and I like extreme romance. You know, the lovey-dovey stuff. I, I just kind of gravitate to those extremes. If it's somewhere in the middle, I'm bored. <laughs> Avengers, that kind of stuff, I just can't even deal with it. Just fall asleep. But give me extreme war or extreme love, and I'm... <laughs> well, when Jesus comes, there's two extremes. It's as extreme as you can get. And on the one hand... When Jesus comes, there will be great joy, there will be relief, there will be rest for God's people. On the other hand, there will be judgment and there will be retribution. We're going to look at that, but go ahead and let's jump to the text here. Second Thessalonians 5 to 10, remember, he's just commending the people in spite of their suffering. And he said, listen, all this suffering you're going through at the hands of ungodly people, it's all evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result... You're going to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. You're suffering at the hands of godless people who hate you, who hate Christ. But God is just, verse 6. And he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. You know what that word trouble means? It means pain and affliction. God is going to pay back pain and affliction to those who are causing you pain and affliction. And he's going to give you relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. And here is the theme of this whole verse here in 7. And this is going to happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, the day of the Lord, the second coming. When Jesus comes, that's when this relief is coming, this joy, and that's when this retribution is coming. When he comes from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels... And Jesus, of course, taught about this, that the angels are going to gather in the harvest, the wheat, the tares grew up together, the wheat going with the Lord, the tares going to be burned up in unquenchable fire. You've seen that. And he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel 
of our Lord Jesus. And they will be punished not just with destruction, with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes, the second coming, the day of the Lord, to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. We're going to marvel. We're going to go, wow, God, wow. And this includes you. Why? Because you believed our testimony to you. You're believers. You're followers of Jesus. So let's look at this. When Jesus comes, this twofold result, this twofold effect. When Jesus comes, he will give, verse 7, relief, and in verse 8, retribution. So let's look at these two extremes at the coming of Jesus Christ. Relief is the first one. The Lord Jesus is coming to bring peace, to bring joy, to bring blessedness, to bring eternal fullness to his people. That word relief literally means rest. Rest in an everlasting sense. Rest in an eternal sense. Rest in every conceivable sense. Listen, we all understand life is full of trouble. Just talking about it earlier. It's trouble. It's constant. It's incessant. Now, it's punctuated by brief moments of rest. And in our souls, because of our salvation, we have rest. But outwardly, there's constant trouble. This will not go away until we go to be with the Lord. So stop acting surprised every time something bad happens. You get a flat tire, you get a health issue, you get a relational issue, it's a problem at work. I mean, it's life, right? God didn't promise, give your heart to Christ and you'll just float on flowery beds of ease the rest of your life. It's exactly the opposite of what he told you. He said, you're going to have trials and persecution and there's pain and there's suffering. Don't, be, don't let that discourage you. Still in the middle of it, we have joy. In, in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. And we have a, a measure of the presence of God now, but one day we're going to see Jesus face to face. We're going to be in the presence of God. There will be relief from all trouble. It'll be the end of persecution. It'll be the end of pain. It'll be the end of cancer. It'll be the end of rape. It'll be the end of war. It'll be the end of divorce. It'll be the end of a sinful world doing damage to us. It'll be the end of the sinful world encroaching upon our lives. It's the end of Satan being able to use the world system to tempt us. It'll be the end of the invasion of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Every evil stimulation will be gone. Persecution Suffering, pain, trouble, afflictions, trials, testing, gone. We'll be delivered. We'll be comforted in his presence. We'll enjoy his presence forevermore. We'll be caught up from the grave, caught up from the earth to meet the Lord in the air. And and, and so shall we ever be with him. The Bible says, therefore, be comforted by this. Take hope. Heaven's coming. You're going to be good. You know, think about how vast the, the universe is. Milky Way is just a tiny little blot in the middle of the universe. God's got stuff planned for us. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? We're going to rule and reign with him out of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's going to be awesome. No more tears. No more suffering. No more sin. No more temptation. When the Lord Jesus comes, for those who believe in him, it's going to be wonderful. 
beyond wonderful. Think of the best things you have ever experienced on earth. It will be multiplied times more, more glorious when we're with him. Years ago, I was being mentored in a cohort of some of the largest church pastors in New England. I got invited to this cohort. And one of the speakers came, and he was a, an older man in the faith and had a wonderful, fruitful ministry over the years. And he was pushing 80 years old, still preaching. And he said, it's kind of interesting to note, he said, my wife and I have aged at different speeds. And so they're almost 80, and his wife would just content to stay home visit the grandchildren a little bit, but she was kind of physically just, you know, getting tired. But he was like, I'm, I'm ready to go. So he was still traveling and preaching. And, and he said this, it's interesting. He said, as I look back over my life, most of those folks that I've loved and known in my youth are gone. They're gone. And he said, at this stage of my life, I'm focusing on what's important, the kingdom of God and my family and my friends. He said, but I, I want to tell you, Every day I get grow older, I think about heaven a lot. I think about what it's going to be like to see my loved ones again. I think about what it's going to be like to meet some of the saints, some of the characters that we see in Scripture. I think about what it's going to be like to see Jesus. He says, sometimes as I'm reflecting, I, a tear will, I'll shed a tear, and other times I'll smile, but I'm starting to long, he said, for heaven. You know, heaven in the scripture is a real place. It's a place that God has prepared for you and for me because he loves us and he wants to spend eternity with us. Jesus said, in my father's house, it's a big house, are many mansions. If it were not, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. I can't tell you how many funerals I've done over 25 years of ministry. But every time I do a funeral for someone who knew the Lord, even though it might be sad naturally, depending on the circumstances, you know, it's always a little sad and we mourn with those who mourn. But at the end of the day, they're with Jesus. That ain't bad. <laughs> what a hope we have. I don't know how people live that have, don't have that hope of being with the Lord. Jesus is coming back. The dead in Christ shall be raised. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. Amen. What God has planned, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man those things that God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even fathom it. It's so wonderful. God is so awesome. It just makes me happy. Praise the Lord. We have something to look forward to, this blessed hope. Glory to God. I just get all excited. All right. Now, the other side of that coin, verse 8, retribution. When Jesus comes, there will be such joy, such relief, such rest, such pleasure for his people. But on the other hand, there's going to be, he's coming to execute, to, to punish, to conquer, to give eternal hell to those who are not his people. 
And this is the message that isn't palatable in our culture. But what is retribution? It means vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. God will avenge those who have offended him. Those who have rejected him. Those who have rejected the gospel and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've rejected Christ. They live lives of sin. They don't acknowledge God. They live in rebellion to his law. They hate the Lord or don't believe in the Lord. The word retribution also means punishment. It carries the idea of full vengeance and full punishment. And when Jesus comes in his glory to deal out retribution, the day of grace is over and the day of judgment begins and it will sweep across the world. Like I said, we don't like this. How could God do that? And so we invent these different doctrines to try to lessen the blow. One doctrine that's been created by man, it's not in the scriptures, the doctor of annihilationism. And here's what that doctrine says. It says, well, you know what? This is so bad that I think what's going to happen, maybe, yes, I don't deserve to go to heaven. I didn't accept Christ or whatever. But God's not going to eternally punish somebody. So they'll just be annihilated. They'll just cease to exist. Kind of like, poop, gone in vapor and thin air. The only problem with that is it's not true. And so we create another doctrine to try to appease the conscience and make us feel better. And it's called universalism. Universalism is the same mentality that says everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's going to heaven. Maybe you hated God. You didn't believe. But you're still going because... What Christ did on the cross, you know, he paid for the sins of the whole world, which is true. But those sins have to, have to be forgiven. You must repent of them. You must be regenerate, reborn. And if you're not, you're not going to heaven. So universalism is a lie. But why would God do this? Why does God need to eternally punish somebody who rejects him? And the answer is very simple, and it's found in verse 6. Why does God deal out retribution when Christ comes? The answer is this. God is just. It's justice. We've used the example before. If you speed in a school zone, 50 miles an hour in a 15, and you hit a kid and kill him, and you go before the judge, listen, I'm sorry, I should not have done that. I won't do it again. The judge lets you off. A week goes by, you do it again. Hit another kid. Keep killing these kids. And the judge keeps letting you go off. Pretty soon you're going to say, well, you know what? There's no justice here. There's no justice for the wrongs committed. You look at Auschwitz and the horrors of the atrocities of the German army in World War II, and you think, you know what? There's got to be justice. There has to be, the wrongs have to be made right. It bothers the human mind and conscience to see evil not punished. And the reason is because we have a sense of justice. We want it to be right, made right, the wrong made right. God is holy and he must punish wickedness and evil. And he will. And it is just, it is equitable, it is right, it is fitting for him to do so. That's why retribution is coming. And secondly, who will be the recipient of this retribution? Well, in verse 6 again, he says, it's those who trouble you. Those who 
persecute Christians, those who hate Christians, those who hate God, those who hate the name of Jesus, those who obey not the gospel of Christ. These are the ones, verse six, verse eight, those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the people, the ungodly, the wicked, the liars, the sexually immoral, the cowards. You've seen it all in the scriptures. We saw it a few weeks ago. These people will be eternally punished. That's what the scripture says. And how will he do it? How will he do it? How is this vengeance and this retribution and this this punishment to be meted out? How will this happen? Well, it says in verse six that he will pay back trouble. In other words, that trouble means pain and affliction. It'll be painful affliction. We're, We're talking extremes here. In the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. God's people will be eternally blessed in his presence. On the other hand, those will be eternally punished. It's eternal judgment. That's what the scripture teaches. It'll be a painful execution of judgment and of judgment. It'll be the ruination of that individual. And furthermore, the scripture says there'll be no presence of God there, no glory of the Lord there at all. No manifestation of his power. That's retribution. That's what happens when Jesus comes. Relief, retribution. And be sure, the scripture is clear. The Lord Jesus will return. And he will return, said in this passage, from heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father now, but he's coming with the mighty angels in glory, in flaming fire, Not earthly fire, but the fire of judgment and the fire of his glory. And why is he coming back? Why is it necessary? For two reasons. To bring relief to his people and to bring retribution to his enemies. Those are the two purposes for his return. And they are bound up in the story of redemptive history. And in the display of his own justice and his righteousness and his glory. And then Paul closes out with a prayer, and I'll just look at this real quickly as we close. He says in verse 11, now church, church I'm so proud of. Church, you understand when the Lord comes what's going to happen now. And with this in mind, we're constantly praying for you. We know you're suffering. We know you're being persecuted, and we pray for you. And here's three things that we pray. We pray that God would make you worthy of his calling. Pray for worthiness. And we pray... That by his power, we pray for power in your life. And we pray for fulfillment, that he may bring fruition to your every desire for goodness. Because we, as children of God, desire to do good. We pray for the fulfillment of that in your life and your every deed prompted by faith. We're praying for your works, fulfillment. For what purpose, for what reason? He closes out in verse 12. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Not that you may be glorified, not that you may be lifted high, but that Jesus, the son of God, the conquering king, the returning savior would be made big in you. Would he be glorified in you? That his power would work in you, that you would do the works of the kingdom prepared in advance, good works prepared in advance for you to do. You're going to enter into that. You're going to bring glory to God. It's going to be an awesome thing according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how he ends his first chapter. 
the highest purpose, the highest motive, the greatest reason for us to become like him is in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and us in him. That's for his glory. So the question remains as we close out here today is this. When Jesus returns, when he comes, you're going to be the recipient of his relief, his rest, joy in his presence, or his retribution. You say, I don't want the retribution thing. I don't want eternal destruction and punishment and ruination. What do I need to do? He, the Bible says, Jesus teaching, he who has the son has life. And he who has not the son has not life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. How do you have this life, this God kind of life, this abundant life that God wants for all people? God's not willing that any should perish. How do you get this life? How does it come? One way, through Jesus. Repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and become a child of God. Live a life of obedience to him and to his word, and look forward to the day when Jesus returns. Amen? Let's pray. Friend, I don't know where you are in your journey with God, but if you'd like to receive Christ, if you feel the drawing of the Holy Spirit, you, on the inside, you just know, I, I believe this. I believe that Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose from the dead. I believe that. But I, I don't feel sure. I'm not confident. I'm worried. I'm scared. What do I do? Repent and believe. Turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ. The Bible said, if you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Saved from sin. Saved from the penalty of sin. Saved from eternal death. Because of Jesus. It's because of Christ. So call on him. Put your faith in him. Receive mercy. Receive forgiveness of sin. Forgive as you've been forgiven and Enjoy his presence from now through all eternity. It's the greatest news in the world. Call on Jesus. I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now. If you need assurance that you belong to him, or if you've never called on him before, let's call on him right now with our hearts. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for loving me in spite of my sins. You demonstrated that. By sending Jesus. I believe, Jesus, you're the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. And that includes mine. And I repent. I turn from my sin. I ask for forgiveness and for mercy. And I put my trust put my faith in the risen Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Put your spirit inside of me, God, and make me your child. Thank you for hearing my prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Pastor Jay is coming to close this out.